0: to los altos institute's course on globalization and the rise of the anti-globalization movement which ran in the summer of 2022 my god (laughs) the yangtze and the loire that's like and it's like and everybody's like but we but we've got like the big problem is we're not, we're not fracking enough. We're not like burning oh, enough gas. Oh, like, what did I miss about the Yangtze? Or,
1: oh, the Yangtze is run dry just like the Loire. Oh, okay. I thought uh, some, I heard some other river went dry too. I can't remember which one. Yeah, it's just like, it's like, it's
0: just wall to wall harbingers. It's just like people being notified your civilization is about to fall. <laughs>
1: That's like, like, That's like, impossible. like in the book. <laughs> you know, just,
0: just look look this up. When this happens, what happens next? You know, and uh, no, people are like, well, because Ukraine, more fracking. Yes, more coal too. <laughs> I know,
1: yeah, just kind of like... More
0: coal, more gas, more everything. Yeah. Oh no, the Russia is a corrupt petro state. It's invaded Ukraine. Clearly the solution is for us to all become more corrupt petro states. Like... What the fuck <laughs> it's so bad it's so absolutely I bet, like when this all
1: started i was just like uh <laughs> like 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 you know we we're trying to lower the, the amount of carbon and then when the russians kicked off i was like oh well we fucked that up like it hey, never occurred, uh, yeah. Like it never occurred to us someone was about to leverage this in, like, leverage this.
0: Or, <laughs> or let's consider what actually runs the American Senate. You notice how you've been watching the American Senate's interests diverging from those of the American state, so that it seems like under Mitch McConnell's leadership, the American Senate is almost deliberately sabotaging the United States on behalf of. Uh, what Americans like to call hostile foreign powers. No, it's that America has been the oil empire since 1878. Oh, yeah. Like- and, and all it's doing is it's recognizing its allegiance is to a commodity, not a set of people in a territory.
1: Yeah, like they're yeah, like they it's it's the it's the tr- the transfer of goods or whatever it is. But yeah, like when when the Russians said they were going to send or not Russians, the Americans said they were going to back up Ukraine and everything and and uh clearly they did a calculation someplace and part of that calculation was well, Russia's oil is about to become offline. Um, That's a real opportunity. Like yeah. or like that, or they- that,
0: or or simply the oil industry holds a majority in the American Senate, and that it has no national or patriotic allegiance. That's all fictional. There is an industrial interest that has carefully managed public opinion in a set of demographically declining regions over a century in order to retain its hegemony over this tool. America isn't a territory. It's a tool the oil industry uses to create the realities the oil industry wants to create. And right now, America and NATO being humiliated by petrostates in this war is the interest of the oil industry. The oil industry wants Russia to win. That's why Tucker Carlson wants Russia to win. That's mm-hmm. why Mitch McConnell wants Russia to win. But they don't just want Russia to win. They want America's humiliation to be associated with Biden's tepid climate policies. Yeah. So that even, um, so that any political view other than uh, flooring the gas over the cliff becomes inconceivable. So we saw this in the Iran hostage crisis. We saw all this play out. And what we've done with the Iranian revolution for the past 40 years is we've put a box around it and went gone. This is the exception.
1: Hmm.
0: And in fact, no, the Iranian Revolution defines everything in the present: the oil politics, the, the regional small business interest politics, the religious politics, the climate politics. The authoritarianism, the grassroots authoritarianism from the second phase of Khomeini's seizure of power. Do you know that they didn't pass some national law to make universities require hijabs? They penetrated the institutions of civil society with pro-hijab people to the point where each university individually decided to do that. This is the kind of authoritarianism we've been deliberately and willfully blind to. And there are so many other aspects of that state that are totally definitional of the present, but we continue to believe in the secularization thesis for 20 years after a theocracy took power an explicit theocracy with the cooperation of an incipient theocracy, that of the Reagan administration, it's, um, it's, it's, I, I really feel like this week I've been confronted by Christopher Lee in that uh, scene from A Fellowship of the Ring, the only one of those Jackson movies I do like, where he goes, the hour is later than you think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's the thing. It's like, oh, this has all been lined up a lot earlier. A lot of pipe has been laid for what's going on right now. <laughs> to us, it seems like the world has suddenly gone mad. But this unhinging has been, you know, this is a century long process to pull this off. Anyway, there's there's my opening ramp. <laughs> there will be I other ramps.
2: I had high hopes that um, it would force some more use of, um, I mean, with Russia going down, not it, it would actually produce more um, ecological solutions just out of sheer desperation, which is the only way people seem to really do anything. So, yeah, I don't so know. you're
0: properly motivated. Yeah, a lot of yeah. people won't change, right? Good, no, no, no. If, we create, if you create a good society, people are motivated by desperation. Yeah. <laughs> that's, but you actually have to, like, it never, we, liberalism caused us to naturalize that in people, to assume that that's just a natural human choice. I mean, it, it speaks that to That people are people. good or? Yeah, that, that, no, no, no. That people will act rationally to prevent themselves from being hurt. Hmm. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. the core liberal belief about the human character. And that we're all rational. Right. Yeah. And, and, yeah and, and that we're trying to protect ourselves. Even when I'm proceeding rationally, it's rarely for my own good. Uh, often I use reason as a means of increasing the level of danger I'm experiencing, not reducing it. Um, this is, this is like why you read self-help books about dating. It's like, well, I'm, uh, I'm going to make some atrocious choices. So let's, let's get on with it here. Let's get more efficient of that. <laughs> now, of course, the, the decision to let people pick me instead, because that was stupid, seems to have turned out to be just as stupid, but, uh, actually it's not just as stupid. I, I, I think my, my luck trended up, uh, and, uh, but, but yeah, I, know it's it's i actually that's the word interest i think people i think generosity is way harder to kill in a person than mm. reason or self-preservation reason mm. and self-preservation are easy to kill we're we're we are a pack animal we we don't function on our own so why would genes breed a high level of self-interest into us
1: mm. yeah i guess you're right like you don't want you don't want to be too
0: self-interested because that won't help the community right yeah and we only function at scale we only function as a unit i i i mean you know i some of my theories i i have you know i probably have too much confidence in but i'm absolutely convinced that um, our original population size limit was determined by the prevalence rate of restless leg syndrome like what do you mean like you need one insomniac who moves around all night and guards everybody else
2: yeah i can see that that runs in my family so
0: (laughs) well also having like one of my my best oldest friends who really shouldn't be my friend anymore like i don't know why this guy likes me i brought him nothing but disaster but he um he has clearly undiagnosed restless leg syndrome uh and um He has a restless leg personality to go with it. He's always worried about the rest of us. Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean, self-preservation. I keep hoping for a soylent green kind of uh, option towards the end of my life after the uh, uh, healthcare system has kind of, it's going to shit. The environment's going to shit. So I just as soon watch a movie and, you know, be let out in some sort of nice probably fentanyl induced ending <laughs>
0: well, opiates make me really itchy it's <laughs> like the only reason i'm alive probably is that oh. i find opiates really unpleasant
1: mm-hmm. uh
0: oh, that's good that's good <laughs> but uh but yeah the uh that uh that, swelling, that swelling green that's what i find so interesting like that's really what many of us are struggling with i think those of us who are most politically dislocated is that our Soylent Green is premised on the idea that the elite sense of disgust will move and mm. common people's sense of disgust won't. And I think that's actually really descriptive of our moment. Yeah. I think that's like you you discover at this moment whether you're a commoner, uh, whether you're you know uh, one of the folk because, Somehow the people in the elite are in, the, in such a crazy scene that they their sense of disgust is detached from ours. That uh, that, that there are there are things that are, are just like and this this is where the expression blowing smoke up your ass comes from. This uh, that, that that's Versailles. Hmm. They had people whose yeah. full-time job it was to blow smoke up other people's asses. <laughs> like literally. Literally, so literally what,
2: is, what is that? What's the myth behind it? Like,
0: <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's the most efficient way of administering nicotine as a drug.
2: Oh, yeah, I guess it would be.
0: Huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, of, of course.
2: <laughs> That's going to make some interesting innovations in the vaping industry.
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, look, when, when, when the vapors and pharma get together, anything is possible. What I what I predicted in a dystopian RPG I wrote 20 years ago, the one thing I haven't seen is I always thought, I never saw rolling coal and um, identitarianism as opposing forces. So I always imagined that people would start purchasing um, uh gas based on the aesthetics of the of, of the exhaust it produced huh. that, um, that you'd have like rainbow flag exhaust and pink exhaust and uh, everybody would be into it but uh, <laughs> we ended up not not going that way uh but uh but i i, I think we're close <laughs>
2: there are um chemically treated fire logs that you can get that do produce weird effects yeah
0: Yeah, it sounds um,
2: horrifying, frankly, like like just, oh, cobalt,
0: yay, (laughs) blue, no. (laughs) Well, I mean, mean, who knows what's rational? No, I I came to a lot of the, I was, no, honestly, I was always convinced that uh, we'd vastly oversold how much uh, rationality or self-preservation we'd bring into ourselves. Hmm. But I was only checking one side of the equation when I went to Ethiopia in 2007, it became so clear that that was true.
2: Interesting. Because there
0: are certain regions of the country where you actually do have to go down roads at the side of which people are literally starving to death. And um, starving people do not spend all their time looking for the last calorie. Huh. They hang out and make art.
2: Interesting, okay, huh. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, that's like, like, like Abraham Maslow is a very special kind of wrong. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is utterly inverted. The, the thing we most desire is to be with the other creatures that we can make sound with and then to bootstrap some kind of meaning to it. Apparently, as long as we're doing those things, pretty much we can let everything else fall away. We will turn down anything else to get those two things. Hmm. And uh, this helps to lead me into the, the final discussion, which I, I really had to work myself up to for this reason. Um, I made a commitment to a Quaker uh, in November and, um, And all of my writing and teaching projects right now are based on me fulfilling this, this commitment before the end of the year, which is that uh, I really need to start making some suggestions about stuff that can make things better. Hmm. Uh, That that's, you know, I have very good reasons, you know, I have sort of been on the run socially and politically and intellectually for about three straight years. But at a certain point, when you're on the long march, you go, shit, I might be on the run until I die. Better figure out how to like do not on the run things while I'm on the run. So yeah, so I was tasked with this problem. and I think the Quakers have handed something down where, like, Quakers aren't allowed to cancel people. So, in my model of like who I've been canceled by, the clearly aberrant data is from Quakers that they they just won't do it. Uh, so um, anyway, I said a number of positive things about my friend Armin and 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 their movement. So, what we are really tasked with is. We have an incredible opportunity, right? I mean, I I spoke in deliberately unflattering terms about the rise of anti-globalization politics among conservatives, but whatever has got people there, the point is that they're there. The point is that we are surrounded by members of the working class um, questioning uh, this process of capitalist globalization that has been going on for centuries, questioning that. Uh, and as with so many things where the right, where people on the right, due to just like the amount of churn in this maelstrom, are questioning things that people from their political movement, from their political communities, questioned in decades, and uh, they're doing that right now. There are incredible opportunities. I'm reminded in this of, um, it sort of brings me full circle to a piece I wrote that was sent to a very small number of people about the collapse of the BC Eco-Socialist Party. And I referenced this speech by Booker T. Washington right? The, the guy who was the face of, you know, Uncle Tom's in America, the guy who, you know, the Atlanta business leader who said that, that voting rights weren't a big deal, said that access to universities wasn't a big deal. We we're just going to just provide us some trades education and let us run our own communities. Now it turned out that all the people who denounced Booker T. Washington as a sellout were also funded by him, we, uh, we later learned, that this man actually had a much bigger vision than he was going to let on in a single persona because that persona got him a meeting with Teddy Roosevelt at the White House at the height of Jim Crow. Anyway, Booker T. Washington's greatest speech um, in favor of what's called the Atlanta Compromise. Um, is uh, colloquially known as drop your bucket here. Uh, In actual fact, it's uh, cast your bucket down here because like many uh, Black intellectuals or men of his age, uh, my grandfather included, um, there were a lot of like minor affectations in the behavior to demonstrate that one was an educated person. It mattered to my grandfather that he had, read the complete works of William Shakespeare, given that he'd never had a chance to go to school, given his experience of slavery and Jim Crow. So the thing is, Washington tells this anecdote of a ship that um, has become becalmed off the coast it's trying to reach, where there's a river and the ship is out of water. And it remains becalmed, uh, just just off the coast, just just a short distance from water it needs. And a local fishing boat goes by, and the the captain explains his problem to the local fishermen, and the local fishermen say, "No, just cast your bucket down here." Uh, and what the locals knew was that the flow of the Amazon was so strong that even this distance off the coast of northeastern Brazil, your bucket would still be full of fresh water from the river. Uh, Washington makes this appeal um, at the height of the immigration boom to say, stop importing immigrants, hire uh, the freedmen of America, your former slaves. We, we will work hard. Cast your bucket down here. My experience of doing the BC Eco-Socialist Party thing was the precise reverse. So in my, my experience, it's like, what we're gonna do is we're gonna go out into the movement and there are all these great movement activists. There've never been so many volunteers for environmental organizations and socialist organizations this is going to be great. But my realization was that I was in the Brideor, uh the giant saltwater lake at the center of Nova Scotia. You haven't seen the ocean in a week, but if you cast your bucket down there, you will still be pulling up the Atlantic ocean. Uh So my experience was that the movement was, I kept thinking the Green Party is sick. I didn't realize that it's sickness was that it was actually less sick than the movement it was drawing people from. The movement had got so sick that there was like that everything was contaminated in the civil society, the left, because in part of the way we changed high school graduation processes, the way we changed university graduation processes. What we did was we filled these organizations with ambitious conscripts. Uh, These are the kids, like they're not in the Green Party or Greenpeace for the reasons that I was in those things at that time because the material reality has changed. Now, The corollary to this is people are still shunning the actual working class. We have an opportunity to speak to an audience of people who haven't considered anything socialist in a generation about a shared concern that they have now developed about the effects of these globalization deals. We're so bound up in our grief over the comrades we have lost that we don't realize that we've been given this great opportunity to actually reach potential comrades we couldn't have imagined ourselves reaching a decade ago when we were enmeshed in the North American culture war. So, the, so I, I think this is something to take seriously and why it probably is good that I took three years to think about it. Uh, I how do we do that? What do we present? And so here I'm not going to get carried away. I'm I'm, I'm going to list multiple options for what one might like to present. But let's consider that there are options. So there is something that is so there, first of all, you've got your two general binary categories here. You have non globalization and you have alter globalization. So alter globalization is the idea that of course the world remains globalized in the sense that there are there's a global order there are there's a set of laws that enforce that um, that enforce uniform interactions when one moves when things move. Um, And of course at, the, at the, the, the heart of that is the, uh, the original Marxist project. People who call themselves Trotskyites today, um, that's their animating project. They see there as being a single world community. They see that as being class-based, as being industrial, and as it needing to be democratic. Um, The idea is that, no, we should not have borders. Um, That um, borders are arbitrary. They're the creation of 19th century Napoleonic nationalism. Um, And it's weird, the idea that the world has certain laws based on which of the polygons etched into its surface you're standing in. It's like, oh, oh, wow, this is Poland. That was okay then. Um, you know, there's um, that is weird and arbitrary and unreasonable. I mean, another evil, of course, of borders is that borders cause partition. Right when when you think that in an, an ethnic or religious or whatever kind of community it is has to be represented in the form of a nation. Well, when you have borders that causes tremendous violence. Um, The partitioning of Europe and India, uh, millions of lives were lost in an effort to sketch these communities onto the surface of the world and to maintain borders. So, uh, ultra globalists have a strong case to make. And almost any reasonable political or religious ideology only puts its ideas forward in global terms. There are very few philosophically significant movements that don't have a universal message for all people. Uh, And generally, we have viewed universalist messages as good. Um, I think, I mean... I, I see a lot of evil in things that people generally see as good, but the flip side is that I, I can see a lot of good in things that, that other people will see as evil. War, Roman war propaganda against Carthage is, in my view, if one is to make an argument that there is such a thing as Western civilization, and it's a thing anyone should stand behind, Um, It would have to be premised on it coming into being in the Punic Wars, when Rome had to explain to the citizens who would not profit from the war, who would only lose from the war, why they had to participate in the war. And, right, Rome was like a normal, you know, incipient empire in that most of its war aims and most of its reasons for going to war um, were grounded in the ability to be very easily offended and to claim that they had been offended or slighted in some way by some power. Then they'd go and kick the shit out of them and get what they wanted. It was a pretty standard formula, you know. And it, But they didn't do that in the Punic Wars because the wars were so fucking tough. They needed to up their propaganda game. And... I think that this moment, it speaks to not why universalism is philosophically true, but why universalist ideologies um, should be taken very seriously from an ethical perspective. The argument they made was that, which is absolutely true, um, infants are being sacrificed to the god Baal in Carthage. And what the Romans did was they convinced their citizens that they should care about other people's children. That that was the foundation of their decision to go to war again. Now, of course, it wasn't really the foundation. It was, you know, it was all just a shakedown. It was all just, you know, people trying to control the fucking grain trade and whatnot. And the, you know, access between the East and West Mediterranean and the two trading systems. But you know, people have to have good motives for doing things. Like Lincoln was a fucking shithead. Like he he betrayed his own party repeatedly. He lied incessantly. He was they had they primaried him. He would lost the Republican primary for selling out the anti-slavery movement. <clears throat> it's just they got more scared about vote splitting than Lincoln because Lincoln was a fucking monster, you know. But Everybody recognizes he emancipated the slaves. There are these important important moments, and I think this Roman war propaganda, it points to why it makes sense to be a globalist. There are people's kids somewhere in the world, and I kind of give a shit about them. I hope that other people's kids are doing okay. I don't think that's an impulse you necessarily want to kill in people. It seems like an impulse that might've caused us to pull our socks up just a tiny little bit more historically. That, and I'm, I'm confronted with this by illiberal forces all the time. I'm routinely asked, why do you care about other people's children? And my response is always the same, why don't you? There's a split over acts of imaginative empathy. And one of the reasons that we, that it's good to put forward globalist alternatives to people in the anti-globalization, I don't wanna say movement because that would take it too seriously. People who've suddenly adopted this opinion on the right, you wanna make sure that they're not using anti-globalism as an excuse for not caring about other people's children. And we know that some of them are because some of them really, really enjoyed those kids in cages. They really enjoyed that theater of cruelty. Uh, there was something truly monstrous there. I read the comments and Trump pro Trump Facebook groups in response to the photos. Well, it prepared me for how like I see photo uh, like yeah my just dis- so something's happened with people's disgust thresholds because like that. Their, their, their comments are things like, you see that one who's got her hands around the chain link fence. I just want to smash her fingers with an aluminum baseball bat. I'm thinking, no, no, caring about other people's children is good, it's important, we need that. Um, so now, of course, there is an existing liberal globalist ideology, that is married to the logic of capitalism. I think some people, I think a thing we've got to give the liberals credit for is they know they've kind of played out their hand. They're totally not saying liberalism didn't have to turn out this way. We we want to do over. Like that is not a plea you're going to hear out of a Macron or a Trudeau. So the great thing is that for people offering models of world economic and human interaction, uh, the liberals have have conveniently quit the field. Um, You've got Trotsky's permanent revolution, or you have that. But then, I guess, there's this other thing. This thing that is clear, that is some way not global, not in that there aren't universal properties across the globe for these societies. But in many ways, I think I've reconciled myself to the strangeness of green politics and why it went absolutely nowhere in that villagization was a real global political ideology that at one time was the ideology of countries comprising over half of the world's population. Villagization was a real thing. Um, and green politics and in particular bioregionalism originally started out as the global North cosplaying villagization. That there were real villages for people to go back to elsewhere in the world. And there were real pre-existing models for how those villages could meet their material needs um, in a way that minimized exchange across space. Uh, We we had the, 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 you know, the villages were, they were real, they were a political order that was being defended. And out of that came a number of interesting and worthwhile ideas. Uh, Deep Green Resistance is a very interesting organization because what it's done is sort of a salvage operation on the ideology of green politics in the 70s and 80s. They've just sort of gone through it all like magpies and picked all the good bits. Um, So there is a modern bioregionalist movement uh, represented in DGR, also the anti-civilization movement. The argument made by people like Derek Jensen is that once you reach outside of your local ecosystem and start meeting your needs with trade, you will start to meet those needs with rating inevitably and civilization will unfold in an absolutely predictable programmatic way. That if we inadvertently or advertently Exceed a certain scale where we become net importers, everything else down to Nagasaki happens. That uh, we can't restrain that desire to, um, uh, to create a discrepancy between where one lives and what one consumes. Uh, in this model, um, what we see is perhaps a fundamentalist version of bioregionalism, an ideology popular in the 1980s and 70s, when the Back to the Land movement was added zenith. Uh, the idea was that we should be organized on the basis of macro watersheds, where you can move everything you need to using navigable water. That's going to be your energy cost control. And you get out of moving stuff that you can't move with navigable water. Now, the thing is that um, the places where it made the most sense, that ideology, and where it remains the most popular are places with very short rivers and very high mountains. British Columbia, California, Alaska, Oregon and Washington were always the center of the bioregionalist movement because the valley bottoms of the Pacific slope are very abundant, very ecologically diverse and very isolated from one another. So it was easy to imagine a bioregionalism in which things stuck to the regions. You just had a general agreement about not using certain kinds of tech and that was the only kind of global vision you needed. Except the thing is that the tech they wanted to disqualify and the society they wanted to produce were thousands of years apart. And I would argue that this is also the problem of the DGR analysis that, In the original trading systems, as I laid out in the first episode, most of the stuff that's traded weighs very little because its value is almost entirely symbolic. It's a luxury good from another place whose absence in your own ecosystem is its main economic value. Um, Those things don't actually produce the, the, they don't cross the threshold that Jensen and uh, Keith talk about. I was hoping to go down to California and discuss this with them myself this summer, but I've been you know, paralyzed. Uh, but uh, this is my central concern is that they're describing a kind of Paleolithic social order where the glaciers have receded, but we're all still very far apart from one another. That's not the reality if you live on the Amazon or the Mississippi or the Mediterranean, the Rhone. There are all kinds of places where you don't hit um, these exploitation thresholds uh, until long after people travel hundreds of miles and never come back or hundreds of miles and then do. You never hit those thresholds when you're trading tortoise shell with Ethiopia. You, um, you, you're act, you actually remain cosmopolitan and seated in your environment concurrently. Um, I think this, uh, and I think this is what we've got to shoot for. I think that we need some kind of global order that is going to prevent us from using technologies that nearly killed us and have already caused just untold death. Um, Clearly there needs to be something, some framework that produces that. I don't know whether that's produced through an endlessly iterating set of bilateral agreements or whether it's produced by a multilateral agreement. But what I do know is that, that any of these agreements have to be sustained Um, And the most successful global order we see before capitalism, and uh, really it's more successful because the world could have kept doing that for way the hell longer, um, was the order structured by the Hajj. The reason we could have uniformity of trade and governance across wide, wide geographic areas was because everybody had to go to Mecca once to talk about it. I think institutions, I think the idea that we can degrowth, that we can, that we can somehow reduce our scale and abandon these technologies and not pick them up five minutes later like we're going to pick them up any second. We will forget why we put them down. That's why Battlestar Galactica was such a good show. Um, it's like, yeah, oh, oh, this thing nearly killed us. We came within an inch of death. We remembered for a whole 20 years to not pick that tool up again. Um, the only way you could possibly sustain the kind of low growth uh, or zero growth sustainable world that the bioregionalists and deep green resistance imagine would be to have an institution like the Hodge. There would have to be a hegemonic institution for people all over the world um, to maintain that consciousness. I'm not mm-hmm. suggesting it would be deliberative and make agreements. That would probably be bad, but the sustenance of that consciousness We've all come here and are all together because we all remember to not do this other thing. Uh, I think that's, yeah. So I think you you have to have travel. And in my view, what we really need to start advocating for, um, because I think that this, you know, I, I don't know i keep trying these shots i mean you got to keep trying them you know i ran a pro noise municipal council campaign that was a weird thing to do uh but uh, uh i and you know the, the pro noise thing didn't necessarily take off right away but i i think we should start hawking slowness um i really like the Milan Kundera book it was his first book in french um But, like, when you go back and you you watch certain shows from the 70s and 80s, right, there's a slowness to them. Um, You know, I find old Doctor Who quite soothing because it takes some time to tell you what it wants to tell you and it's not in a hurry. There's, like, this luxury of, oh, well, we've got all these episodes, we can... We can take our time. We don't have to have a plan for why this is slowed down. The slowing of the film is not an event. It's just the, 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 the nature of life. This fucking obsession with high-speed rail to replace airplanes, it's like, well, it's not going to do that. Because, because the values that make people ride in planes are not the values that make people ride in trains. What we really need are a lot of very slow trains um because you can put boardrooms in slow trains you can put bathrooms in slow trains you can put all kinds of good things in slow trains there's no reason we need to be moving this fast absolutely no reason and as long as we're in this framework like everybody is just you know you talk about any kind of environmental decency what happens is people go, oh, oh, you nuclear, nuclear, we've we've got to go nuclear. And it's like, well, I'm not saying that that's more or less suicidal. I'd say it's probably a wash. But have you considered the possibility of just, like, doing less? Like, and people are like, no, no, I've got to drive my kids to hockey practice. I don't care if the hockey rink gets in flames in four years. I've got to drive them there until the second it's not. Right, what people are not able to handle is slowness. Life has been accelerating their whole lives and they can't imagine that slowness could solve a problem because the slicing of their time into smaller and smaller pieces is how they've been being fucked with for decades or centuries. Uh, This is, you know, we live in the era of railway time. Time used to be objective. You could look at the sun, there it would be, that would be what time it was. We created a system in which the sun might be lying in our efforts to slice time up as finely as we possibly can and as conveniently as we possibly can. I don't think there's some position where you could convince a techno-optimist to not kill the world. People who are convinced that we can't slow anything down and we just need to keep doing the thing we were doing harder. It's like, well, I mean, yeah, sure, you know, maybe we could, you know, reducing carbon emissions doesn't really buy us that much time. The scale of the habitat and ecological modification required to meet these energy needs with any technology is prohibitive. And so, one of the reasons that I've, you know, I remain in favor of this ambiguous amorphous anti-globalization is that the problem is itself scale, too much is getting done. And so the original insight of green politics back when green parties had thoughts um, was the introduction of scale as a categorical problem. We'd always assumed that scale could not be a problem in and of itself in political philosophy problems. But what people like E.F. Schumacher showed was that, no, just if you do anything too much, it's just too fucking much. Like there are just limits on all the stuff you get to do. You're just one of the groups of things that lives here. And, uh, you know, you can't just, You know, replacing systems that uh, crowd out all other life with systems that are slightly less suicidal, I agree with the DGR folks. It's a wash. And so whatever incoherence people bring to the anti-globalization debate, what they've also brought with them, which is the thing we so desperately need, is Incipient in their own thinking, implicit in their own new thinking, is criticism of scale as a category. To understand that scaling things up or down in and of itself produces effects. This is an intellectual tool that has traditionally been in very short supply. And we expected it to become abundant among the wrong group of people. We picked the wrong group for whom we thought that that scale-based criticism would be relevant. But there are just as many people criticizing scale. So um, uh, I think that's, that is That is like we should be optimistic about that. We should, we should pull ourselves together and, uh, and develop some hope about these new folks who are questioning things and finding ways to talk to them about these questions that uh, um, have suddenly occurred to them. I had an experience yesterday that I've been waiting to have um, for two years. A person who agreed with me on the gender orthodoxy tried to convince me to leave the movement opposing the orthodoxy on the grounds that I believed in anthropogenic climate change. Uh, it's like, well, you can't be part of our movement if you think the climate's warming. That's a, I mean, many conservatives are in this movement, right? And there are many climate deniers in this movement. It's weird. You would think that people who are obsessed with science denial as their cause wouldn't also be engaged in science denial as their cause, but we'll, we'll just put a pin in that. Um, I think it's more that they they don't believe any of the science about anything. It's what they can see with their eyes and ears. And their baseline can shift easier on climate than it can on the sex of the person they're talking to. Uh, But uh, leaving that aside, the point is, and of course, you know, the person was a prize asshole. Uh, So naturally I looked at his bio. He was one of the producers of the Tucker Carlson show. Um, But I thought, wow. It took two years and a paid Fox News employee for somebody to go, hey, you get out of here with your, your climate crisis views. I think that gives you a sense of how little surveillance and how much permission we have for talking to conservatives about things like investor rights or climate or whatever. Um, we, we are given, uh, there, there's a floor to be had and we just have to figure out how to remake those social connections. Um, uh, a friend of mine that I uh, did my master's degree with became a cop. And um, she's turned out to be absolutely instrumental in my like, understanding of like, how to talk to people who haven't been in the crazy bubble we've been in. The past while, and on the crazy trip we've been on, that uh, you know the world out there is—it's um, full of connection, and it's just going to be really tactically important to think about the basis on which we relate to people. That uh, you know we we see these really positive and really negative impulses motivating. Uh, this new anti-globalization and that's one of the reasons because I can't like I just can't see ecologically how to make the Trotskyist paradise happen I really feel like I have to figure out how to make the bioregionalist paradise cosmopolitan because I think that is a value worth carrying with us because we can already see like what the loss of income diversity is doing to our cities. Like we know, we know know our communities have to be filled with all kinds of different sorts of people. And it's, I think to do anti-globalization political work going forward, we have to make sure it's still premised on that understanding that we do still care about other people's kids. So uh, anyway, that's, that's that's my spiel, my 13-episode spiel. Um, concluding thoughts, folks.
2: No, that's a, that's an interesting take. I mean, I've been um, sort of following, oddly enough, the Reddit anti, uh, anti-work, anti-corporate sort of forums, because um, that's where I find there's a lot of uh, 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 members my kids' age, the 21-year-olds, and uh, that's where you start talking to them about time and what it's worth and slowness. And that's kind of, that's interesting to me. And then um, I've been following a bit of, uh, I guess, Jason Hickel and the anti-growth, like slow down the growth movement. Yes, yes. I like that a lot. And that that makes perfect sense to me. And what you say about um, bioregionalist, uh, making it cosmopolitan, because I'm not anti-globalist. I think yeah. it's, there's some great things. I just don't want the, the, the excesses of the wealthy to come in and, and fuck us up. That's yeah <laughs> that's my my point there,
0: yeah, I think that's um, yeah, it's yeah I, I never I never uh, I never crossed the reddit threshold, but yeah, I've been hearing good things from the anti-work folks, and you know they're coming out of a tradition oddly enough when the working class was the most committed to educating itself and organizing together, right. Yeah. A number of Joe Hill's songs are anti-work songs. That's why we know the song about him, but not the song by him. Because the songs by him were outside the discourse in the 20th century because they attack work itself. So uh, yeah, I think it's really, that's one of the good signs of the do-over, right? Is that people people rediscover that uh, as, as an idea which was not like, it just wasn't a tool that was available to us during the Cold War. The deal we'd made with capitalism, which was a pretty good deal, uh, was a full employment deal, not an anti-work deal. So, yeah.
1: But yeah, I, just, I, I uh, was just thinking about, like, one little about those details about, do we need nuclear power? or I saw that tweet you had today, you were talking with someone about nuclear power they asked you about nuclear power and you were indifferent towards it and i was like and and i'm just like why the constant consumption of more power like more power i'm just like when's enough (laughs) like because all you're going to do is increase the price of power to the point where you know what's cheaper coal yeah and 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 like you know we maybe we put a, like putting a lid on it makes sense
0: right yeah no <laughs> things with a doubling rate don't survive yeah uh it uh no i'm i'm always like the coal thing i i deprogrammed. i mean i can i'm i i'm now like a i can do a 60 second lngd programming on people i'm i'm pretty pleased so I was talking to a um, conservative who supported the uh, LNG plant in Kitimat. And oh, I, like, uh, like somehow this is going to solve our yeah, yeah, I, problems. Yeah, and I'm like, uh, and, he go, and I go, so he goes, well, it's going to get China off coal. I go, only if you suspend the law of pl- supply and demand. It's like, what do you mean? Well, you have a market. What happens if you flood the market with more of an equivalent commodity? People buy The more. price falls right. and the total amount consumed increases. Yeah. So, the more LNG you extract, the cheaper it will be for China to buy coal. Mm-hmm. And the more coal, consequently, they will buy. Yeah. Um, And, like, it's uh yeah i guess it's just an article of faith that um, if anything is really important to a capitalist capitalism can't possibly be true economics can't possibly be true but uh yeah i, I think that that anyway I, I don't think anyone actually believes that when they, they say it i think it's just a thing people say
1: oh that lng is going to be some kind of savior of the environment? yeah yeah i think people. yeah I, th- I just that. thought that was just absurd like maybe like some kind of transitional fuel or something but that's a Yeah, it. if
0: we started building the plants in 1990. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'll take 15 years for a refinery to come online, so let's yeah. start getting ready for that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, no uh, uh, the yeah, uh, I just want to say like I, uh, like the closing today kind of um, sort uh sort of brought it all together, I think, but
0: well, thanks. I, um, I, I have not closed like this in many years. I uh, have felt, since 2017, I've felt very unconfident about my political advice, not because of all of the failures that have unfolded since then, but because of the one success. Like, we did elect the Horkin government. I, I put 16 years into that. Like, oh like, no no you like, tell, you, <laughs> oh, I, I, I have not been able to tell like how can i tell oh, people what to do after that
1: oh you mean they got elected and now you're having yeah. doubts
0: yeah i oh I all didn't... the things that have made me lose, like no when when oh. people when people like hate me and try to punish me for things i've said it's like well good that's what the bible says should happen like that that's that's what's supposed to happen if you're an ethical person
1: yeah you yeah like you're going to held accountable for your
0: actions right like no no uh, i just mean that like i think that the fundamentally the story of the bible is that uh, if you live right and treat your friends well and tell the truth it should take the government a maximum of three years to hunt you down and kill you
1: Oh, yeah yeah. yeah, 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 I remember that. Yeah, yeah, you said that. Yeah,
2: sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really cynical way of looking at it. Yeah. No, a I don't think it's
1: cynical burpee. at all. I, I think I... I, I yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah, totally. <laughs> I totally, yeah. Like This is why I like because because like, I come from a completely different background, and I find it bizarre that we line up in a lot of ways. I, just, <laughs> well,
0: I think Terry Glavin really had it right. Like, we um we brought him in as an institute speaker five years ago and i can't think of anything that's the same about the institute since uh, we brought anyway it was a big deal right we filled a lecture hall at sfu and he put on like your classic glab and performance like he was you know there was the great left-wing analysis there was the upsetting sellout to the israel lobby there is like but he hasn't sold out to the israel lobby he just hates people who kill his friends. Um, that's why he's totally insane on the Callistan file as well. If you kill Terry's friends, he's not going to look at your political situation very objectively. Yeah, And yeah, I but... can't say that I would do the same, but he gives this great talk and he, uh, you know, so you see all these different elements of, of this performance, including the like, well, but your friends killed my cousin and burned his house down. So I'm really sorry about that. You know? Yeah. Give me your number. Uh, we should talk. So uh, he's at a certain point, somebody says, well, you know, you consider yourself to be a member of the left. And he goes, well,
1: hmm.
0: I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, you know, of course I'm a socialist and, you know, I follow in George Orwell's tradition and the tradition of the independent labor party. And I have these values um but i'm but no of course i i don't have anything to do with this fake left now i'm really hoping we can get back to a left-right politics but right now it's kind of down to mammals versus reptiles
2: yeah and i I miss red tories (laughs) i miss them i i actually liked most of that i liked a lot of that uh you know that 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 way of politics i suppose I liked Joe
0: Clark. (laughs) Oh, he was, when he did his comeback in 2000, I thought that contained some of the greatest moments of political theater in Canadian history. Well, you know, I thought he had had been drinking as much for (laughs) his debate against Trudeau as he did for the debate against and He would have demolished Trudeau. That's clearly what we learned from that debate. Like that, that incredible performance, like, I've never seen him like have that good a sense of timing. He was he was so in the zone. It's like, well, and now Stockwell Day is saying that you can have a referendum of, what one percent of the population signs the form, five percent of the population. Uh, Day goes, um, uh, I, I, I I I've said one percent. I I've said five percent. Well, what is it today, sir? You know, he was uh, he was lovely. Uh, but, I saw him
2: speak back in the day. Um, I can't remember when it was. It might've been around 2000. It was one of those corporate events that they sent me to at BC Place. And he was one of the, the speakers. But I remember just being mesmerized. It was the first time I think, I, this guy's great. Wow. Why didn't he do better? You know, and it, it's a shame.
0: Yeah, well, it's a Julia Roberts problem, right? Mm. Some people's charisma can't be captured on film think of the impression she was making in all those auditions that we had to be subjected to watching her because okay. uh, none of that charisma came through for me when I saw her on screen but I just figured she was one of those people one of those Joe Clark people where the camera just cancels your charisma he uh, he was also like really tall that's the other thing you lose on camera like I yeah, have
2: how... never don't remember that
0: how large he was, hmm. yeah. It's the biggest predictor. Um, my friend Jeff Ranger's it's like, oh, I think Layton. Uh, it's in two thousand eleven. He goes, well, I, uh, you know, I'd say Layton was going to win the election, but then I remember he's like five foot four. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible, but it turns out that Jeff is a, uses that as a statistical predictor in election rate. It's 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 very good. And so, yeah, we don't know how articulate or tall he is uh, directly. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the problem though is that there's like the political ideology, but then there's the question of how do decent people behave in a socially indecent environment? And what I've found is that I've been living in a zombie movie for uh, several years now because I actually have no idea which of my friends is gonna wake up tomorrow and decide to eat my brains. Uh, not at all i have no predictive model because what people believe three years ago is a garbage predictive model for whether they're going to act like decent people right now they might technically be part of the same social movement or maybe they've changed but that's kind of a separate question all kinds of permission have been handed out to be a complete fucking asshole and who has chosen to take that permission is endlessly surprising to me. I think probably the the most the most absurd are the social media influencers. Oh God, <laughs> who identify as socialist and constantly self-censor in order to not, you know, violate any of the, current etiquette of what calling yourself a socialist means on Twitter but then like every couple of days attack the other fake socialist social media uh, influencers for their self censorship and uh, it's like okay this is like technically you're still kind of being the courageous person you think you are but you've been given permission to do a very silly, not good thing, and a lot of people aren't turning that permission down. Like I, 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 I really um, like that. For me, is more the test. Like I am more likely to be able to make a political deal with someone I was opposed to three years ago and I'm opposed to today, but we can shake hands on a deal and get something done. Um simply because of the stability of their personality architecture across the past three to five years that I know what that deal will mean to them. I know how they will understand it. Like, uh, I know that their sense of honor while not identical to mine is sufficiently similar that they will see certain behaviors as beyond the pale. Um, that for me has been my experience of the and mammals versus reptiles thing. There's this sense of, well, there are some people we can't deal with we can encounter them but uh you know is there a deal to be made and this is why you know i think we we uh yeah we have got to look to who is there left in the society to make a deal with that it. it's worth making a deal with and honestly living up in prince george was okay and then we moved to the neighborhood the heart north of the city and uh my faith that this is even a plan is totally based on living in that neighborhood and like watching what happens when you're vaulted over the walls into a conservative community Mm. and interact with you like you're one of them and it's like Oh, you mean there are all these places inside their communities where they haven't gone totally crazy that are as invisible to us over here as we are to them right now. There's, uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot of isolated people that, uh, you know, uh, we just need to find. Uh, and I think... I'm trying to figure out what to do next on the, the globalization file. I'm, But uh, yeah, this is certainly not the only file on which one can do these things. Uh, anyway, I should, uh, I think my, uh, my neighbor's coming over to watch American Gods in a, uh, about 15 minutes. So I should probably let you guys go. I really appreciate you signing up for this thing. Uh, it was a thing to do uh, in the day during august i think it'll be a pretty decent podcast and uh i really appreciate your contributions to that
1: oh yeah, yeah. and i appreciate the, the course it was an opportunity, opportunity right
0: oh yeah okay um, more weird things soon